Sign up for the newsletter so you never miss an update. Download our app in iTunes and the Google Play Store. Welcome to the podcast. to the influential CEO. This is where visionary founders become revolutionary leaders, elevating your legacy of impact while enjoying the ride. Welcome to another episode of the Influential CEO Podcast. I'm your host, Stacey Rasky. So it's been a little bit since I had just a solo episode, dropping some bombs and genius, uh, all by myself. And it's funny because you know how life happens, no matter what you think you're going to intend on talking about, there's always something, you know, a gift or a lessons um, given to us that is seem more important and pressing to share. And so today, um, that's why I am going to talk about grief and loss and why it's such a vital part of the process in elevating our leadership. So the reason I'm talking about grief and loss is because uh, one of our amazing cats, uh, Miss Musy, is in the process of transitioning. I, I would be surprised if she makes it a week. So she is, you know, we're just spending time with her, lots of love, lots of cuddles and snuggles and attention and treats, of course, um, just giving her a really good time. And I don't share that to bring you down. Um, It's just creating the context of why I'll be talking about grief and loss today. Um, because I'm, I'm being very present with the emotion, right? Like it's very emotional right now. We just, we were out of town for a week for our goals planning trip. Um, my hubs and I, and came back and, you know, even just a week away, we'd been watching her decline, but yeah, it's definitely, it's time. So it's very sad, but she's had an amazing life. Um, so needless to say, it's it's giving myself permission to sit in the emotion of it and not avoid, not numb out, um, really feel the feels because, you know, when we have these situations where it triggers the emotion, it's not just the emotion of the moment and the loss in the moment. It's triggering the experience of, of loss and the emotion of grief across the board. Every time we've felt this way, every time we've lost a a person, uh, uh, you know, 
whether they transitioned or they moved out of our lives, you know, all the previous pets, if you're like me and they are family, you know, every time we lose those we love, there's a lot of change and grief and other emotion around those losses. And as we elevate in our leadership journey, we experience a lot of loss and a lot of grief that doesn't get addressed, doesn't get felt, um, doesn't get experienced because it's not always something external. Sometimes it is, sometimes it's not, but it's not always a loss in the sense of a death either. And so I think grief is one of those emotions that just gets glazed over because it actually is one of those root emotions that leads to the other stuff that we feel. So it's easy for us to identify the anger and the guilt and the resentment, um, the shame around things in our past, um, how who we were, how we showed up, you know, all of that stuff. But we don't always get through the layers of emotion to really be present with the grief and feeling that, feeling the experience of loss to the depth of that we need to. So a big piece of this, especially as it comes to leadership, is loss. And, and I'm going to focus on both sides, the, the external and the internal grieving loss. So as we, as leaders, step more into our purpose and passion, our power and potential, elevating into who we're called to be. We've talked about this a lot in, in quite a few different episodes, the role of community and surrounding yourself with people who truly align with where you're going versus where you were. So as we grow and we learn and evolve into the people we're called to be, we're going to lose people from our lives. Even if this is a conscious choice to cut people out and eliminate them because they don't align with you, that doesn't mean that we don't feel the loss and grieve the loss. And I think that in that transition period, grief is not always one of those emotions that just gets acknowledged. And so, you know, as much as I'm always talking about how emotions are never wrong, they're the best messengers that we have as far as what needs to be addressed internally. They're, it's the best teacher to direct you in what to focus on and how to process through and move forward. The faster we give ourselves permission to feel the emotion, be present with it, basically receive the message so we can learn the lesson the faster we're able to speed up our success. And it's really, really amazing how that works. So this is one that I just want to bring attention to. So of course we can be in that space of like, all right, I got to cut these people out of my life. I got to cut out the, the family that 
is toxic and is just constantly that reflection of all the things we're moving away from. Maybe we're eliminating friends, right? We've got those people who are so stuck in their daily cycles and you know, living in the past and whatever it is that's important to them, but that that no longer aligns for with you now and where you're going. You know, as we begin eliminating those people from our lives, I think we need to acknowledge the loss because those people have been important to your journey to this point. And so we don't have to cut them out in a way that is just focusing on the negative. I think too often we do that. You know, we're like, nope, you know, my sibling so-and-so, my, my parents, um, you know, those, those friends or whatever that are still sitting at the bar talking about the same shit from high school that they were, you know, 20 years ago, and they're, they're just doing the same thing. And We don't have to just focus on the negative and, and, and eliminating the toxic, withholding to the boundary, or they're not of service to us. I think it's, we've got to also acknowledge that, you know, as I said, right, they're integral in you getting to this place. You've learned, val you've gained a value from the relationship and the lessons that you learned, whether it's learning how not to be, whether it was then whether it's now you're learning, oh, you know what? It doesn't align with me anymore, right? There's gifts in every single one of those relationships. And so it's okay to celebrate the good that came out of every single one of those. Even if the highest value for you is simply, wow, I've clearly come a long way because I'm not like that anymore. I'm grateful for the friendship, the, the family, the love, the support that I had in the framework of what it was. And it's okay to not have this as a part of my life anymore. Grieving the loss of any of that external stuff is important. So celebrate that. Celebrate the lessons that you've gained from every single one of those relationships that are no longer aligned with where you're going. Grieve those. And it is okay because if we don't grieve those losses, that emotional cycle is just going to feed into the guilt and the shame of holding to the boundaries, right? And I, I see this so often when people do kind of, for lack of a better word, cut people out, right? It's very all or nothing, black or white, and yet they still have this internal struggle with it, right? Like um, that guilt of it just has to be all or nothing. And, and so they can't, you know, be civil at maybe a holiday or they can just, you know, feel that internal challenge. And I think it's because they're only focusing on one aspect of the relationship when they cut them out, right? Like, oh my gosh, it's too toxic, but they feel that pull and they feel, feel bad for doing so. Like they're not a bad person and they're not, they're not bad people. They're just, they just have their stories and their programming. And so it's okay to say, 
nope, not going to get sucked into that and still honor and celebrate them as people and the relationship for what it was and what you gained from it as you step into that place of moving on with your life and your leadership. And so that was one of the important things for me that I found that allowed me to really move forward in this place of integrity. And again, right, everything that we're doing as leaders is about leading by example. So being in integrity was saying, celebrating, honoring, and grieving the loss of these people from my life. And it helped in healing that trigger around feeling bad for holding to my boundaries and really honoring the vision uh, and, and goals that I'm moving towards. So I, I recommend <laughs> if you have any of these relationships in your life to sit with that and, and see if you're feeling any struggle or challenge with some of those people that you're moving away from. Like, is this a, oh, I feel bad because I'm not actually grieving the loss and celebrating, almost doing a celebration of life, right? Celebration of the relationship for what it was. Like, thank you for everything. And it's not necessarily anything you have to tell them, but it's you processing through it. And it makes it so much easier to move forward in integrity with letting go of some of those relationships and being open to receive the new ones that you need to welcome into your life to help you speed up and elevate and impact at the level you're called to do and the level you're called to be, of course. So as far as the internal, this is where it gets really, really, really tricky. And this is a big one that I feel like in terms of personal development and growth, again, it's this grief and this loss is overlooked so often because like a snake shedding its skin, you know, we go through these massive expansion periods and then there's a little bit of a not contraction, but just kind of integration period where things sort of slow down a bit, right? And during that integration period, things can feel really awkward and uncomfortable because you shed the skin and now it's fresh and new. And then it's like, woo, big expansion, big growth. And then you got to shed in order to be ready to expand and grow to the new level. And every single time we go through those cycles, it's literally experiencing a bit of an identity crisis and there's loss and grief that is part of that transition every time and nobody really talks about that that we've got to be willing to grieve the loss of the identity of who we were to make room for who we're called to be to truly step into the identity of the person that we're becoming now, there's a couple layers to this. So there's the identity of who we were as tied to something external. And this is huge. This is a big piece of loss and grief. If you committed yourself mentally, emotionally, spiritually to, to a certain pathway and to a certain identity of who you thought you would become, whether this is in a relationship, you know, like a marriage, whether this is in a career path, you know, maybe you were corporate for a lifetime as far as a career, and now you're ready to step into, you know, being the leader of your own business 
and need to make that transition and that pivot. And it, and it feels hard to make the leap. Same thing with making the leap away from some of those relationships, but we enter into some of these life paths committing to a certain future that we believe in that that's what it's going to be right of course like we go down this pathway maybe with a career and there the, our identity becomes so tied to this external thing whether it's being married being in this career i see it a lot with my brothers and sisters who were lifetime career military right their their identity became so tied to the job title to the the camaraderie of being in the military that when they transition out it's why they struggle so much because it's like wait who the hell am i what the fuck am i doing my identity was tied to something external so if we're moving away from those things whether it's preparing to or you already have the loss of that identity of that life path, that investment of yourself in that journey, we have to grieve the loss of that life that we committed to in order to make space for who we are called to be. And it's so important because people struggle immensely in connecting to their new identity when parts of them are still holding on to the old identity right? I see this all, all the time as well with like trauma recovery and healing. If we're still tied to some of those old stories, if we're still tied to some of that victim energy, if we're still tied to anything about who we were, owning the, those situations or those traumas or those wounds as part of our identity, rather than something that just happened to us, right? Then it makes it much harder to move forward, much harder to move forward. And so every new level of you as a leader will require a shift in your identity. And so whatever you were anchoring onto, right? New level, same devil. Going into the next level of leadership, impact, influence, is going to require the next level deeper of inner work, of emotional processing, of working through the inner worthiness wounds. And so there's another piece of your identity internally that needs to be grieved, needs to be processed, released, and then the loss of that part of you grieved. Because there's parts of our identity attached to things that don't need to be our identity. It's just the stories, the programming, the, the wounds, the traumas, all the shit, right? We end up integrating it into the identity of who we are. And it's not our identity. So another layer to this, grieving the loss of the identity of who you are, especially elevating as a leader. And this is, this is a really interesting one, is how we are showing up in our leadership. So now we're talking about not just the embodiment of our identity, but now it's the expression of our identity. And this is a big pivot that elevating your leadership 
becomes less and less and less about what you are doing and more and more about who you are being. I talk about this with my clients all the time as they start adding in team, right? They're scaling their businesses that they don't need to be doing all the things, the checklist, the in the business, right? The to-do list stuff. And instead focusing on who they are being as leaders, which means supporting their team and supporting others to elevating their own leadership, right? I mean, the best leaders hire people who are better than them at certain things to really shine in their zone of genius, to do something that it maybe is not my zone of genius. And so instead of me being in my business, doing all of that stuff, instead, it's like, wait, I got to take that step back, let go of control, which is all of the doing and the action. And instead step back and say, okay, how do I communicate better with my team? How do I support them and their success? How do I show up to make sure that they feel like they can be in their zone and shine. And there's a lot to that pivot where we're focusing on the actions are just different. So instead of the, again, checking off all the things, you're doing all the things. Now we're focusing on how do we support our team? And so the actions we're taking shift. And so if we're letting go of control in how we're showing up and the actions are shifting. So if it's more about how I'm being as a leader, my actions are now focusing on support of the team, higher levels of communication, and more than anything, holding safe space for them right? So it's still an action. It's just a way less physical exertion. Like it's not check the boxes kind of stuff. And that in itself can be a huge identity crisis. I see this so often where we've created massive success in our lives, our leadership, our businesses, because of hustle, because of action, because of our ability to lean in and check the boxes really quick, get a bunch of stuff done, and it creates the success really, really quickly. And over time, as leaders elevate into higher and higher levels of leadership, they really struggle with this identity crisis because everything's going well they are no longer physically doing all the things because they, they're delegating, they're doing all the stuff, business is good, health is good, relationships are good, all the stuff is good. And then they struggle with an identity crisis because they're, they've already gotten all their goals and they're not doing all the things anymore. And now it's like, well, who the fuck am I? If I'm not doing it, well, who am I now that I got my goals? So 
there's a lot to understanding this expression of our identity and how what we do can be so tied to who we are being and letting go of so much of the doing and the control we've got to be able to grieve the loss of those roles that we've played those identities that we've owned as the doer in order to become the leader to be the leader we are called to be so it's less of the doing more of the being and if my value as a person and as a leader has been tied to hustle because i have these deep stories and programs that say hard work equals success that action equals value and also that my method of avoidance of my demons my wounds my bullshit has been through hustle you know when i'm always saying hiding in the hustle if that's been my my method of avoidance and numbing out is by being a workaholic basically <laughs> always being in hustle and i know because that's my go-to <laughs> it's my go-to all the time it's like yeah that's fine i'll just work on something i just don't sit still it's weird you know not weird in my world because i'm surrounded by people who just don't sit still right if our identity has been tied to those stories and and those ways in which we are showing up right this is another layer of why we must acknowledge the loss of these expressions of how we formed and and shaped our identity right kind of like what i was talking about before we got to heal that stuff and so much of that shit becomes part of our identity but it's just a story it's just a program you know it's just a trauma that happened to us but it's been so ingrained into who we are that making that shift becomes very difficult and so the reason i wanted to talk about all of this today is because when we acknowledge these identity elements and allowing ourselves to grieve the loss of who we were and really be present with that like this is an important piece of the release right releasing the emotional baggage in order to receive everything that we desire it's important to release all of those old things that are getting in the way in order to receive the new habits the new routines the new identity the new confidence the new levels of leadership, impact, influence. Every time we're going through these sabotage cycles, it's because we're hitting up against one of these identity elements. And so we must grieve the loss to be able to let it go. So I encourage you <laughs> to really sit with where you've been feeling some resistance, some discomfort, you know, some of those cycles and stories playing out and be able to acknowledge that. I like, I see you identity. 
I'm grateful for the role you've played in getting me this far. And it's okay. I can let you go in order to make room for what I need for the next level, who I need to be for the next level and going through that grieving process. All right. I would love to hear from you what your biggest insights and takeaways have been from this episode. So be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite platform. Make sure you've got the influential app on your phone if you don't have it yet. And as always, remember, you are enough. And I will see you in the next episode. If you enjoyed today's show, please head over to iTunes, give us a rating, and leave a review. It's that time of year again. Time to decide have you been naughty or have you been nice. Of course, you've been nice. Head to driveway.com now and upgrade your sleigh. When you buy from Driveway, there's no pressure or haggling. We offer our best price up front, online financing options, and a worry-free 7-day or 400-mile money-back guarantee. That's Driveway, an easy car buying experience that's delivered right to your, well, like the name says, Driveway. Making our computing lives a little easier. That's been the focus of OWC for years. That's short for Other World Computing. And joining us is founder and CEO, Larry O'Connor. Great to see you again, Larry. Hey, likewise. Thanks for having me on. Well, let's start out with a little background uh, because it's it's a part of a fascinating story here. Because you got started with this at a very young age quite some time ago. Tell me about it. It's hard to believe it's already been 33 years, but you know, it's been certainly enjoyable. Looking forward to a lot more, uh, a lot more ahead. But you know, since day one, it's all been about getting the max from you know the great technology, and in particular the great Apple technology that we've got. You know, whether it be upgrading and servicing a system that you know, just needs a little TLC, or having great external solutions, external drives, you know, with today docks. I mean, and far, far beyond. It can take you know the hardware that's sitting in your desk and, and help you go much further. I mean, that is what we do. And it's also about products that last. You know, not telling you that you need to replace everything you already have to, to switch to OWC or providing solutions that are built in a way that you know they're just not gonna give you the longevity. You know, these solutions are built with care, they're built and engineered, you know, looking at their longevity and ability to be there not just for a year or a couple of years, but for as many years as hopefully you should need them. And, you know, it, it's, I guess, a different, a little bit different than some of the, some of the stuff that we, we come across out there. There's no reason for planned obsolescence. There's no reason for you know, products to have a short lifespan. I mean, these are solutions that, you know, really are, I look at, you know, what's on my desk today, you know, I have a Thunderbolt dock, one of our, I mean, I have actually two of our docks now because I needed some more ports, the way things have 
have changed, but I mean, that's a doc I've been using now for about five years. And there's no reason why I won't be using that doc. Now, maybe there'll be a reason, but I don't currently foresee a reason why I won't be able to use that doc another you know, five years from now. And, and that's the thing, you know, we don't build technology that locks you into something we have right now that you might need to change later or requires you to dump everything else you have just to start taking advantage of, you know, a better way and a better solution for the go forward. You've helped people with the, with the upgrades for a long time now, whether it's a new hard drive, memory, whatever is needed here, not only helping them get the, get the replacement parts, but actually helping with the installs too, in some ways, stepping yeah, people through. You know, it's information is empowerment. And we've been, you know, since day one, really just kind of pulling that curtain back saying, this is what you can do. This is how you do it. And, you know, we're, we're, we're going to show you, here's a video, here's instructions. And we have people, you know, great, uh, how to say, you know, tech folks that are available to, if you have a question, to, to talk you through it. And, you know, upgrades, internal is definitely where we got started. And you know, we went from internal memory and hard drives into actually even in the early 90s, really got big into external drives. Then we began doing processor upgrades, which you know, kind of put us into engineering saying, well, these are great systems and they can do more with a, a faster processor. And today, you know, we still support the internals, although those are a bit more complex to say the least. Apple has reduced the, uh, the opportunities for a, a customer to service and upgrade their machine internally. But what we can't do internally, you know, we've absolutely uh, you know, taken to an external level and also brought out great new software applications and built you know, software solutions that you know, help kind of tie it all together and, and keep that value going. And the, the interesting thing here is that... Uh... We've seen storage in computers seemingly uh, shrink, at least at the low end. And it's very expensive to, to, to put uh, more storage in when, you, when you're buying it initially. So that's opened up uh, a lot of doors for you, I suppose, in terms of people needing more than 128 gigabytes today for videos and photos and things like that, or 256 even. The storage goes really, really quick and especially only be able to buy SSD storage Internally, there's certainly a, a premium that's paid at the factory for that. You know, it's nice to have. I mean, I personally wouldn't put less than you know, 512 gig, if not one terabyte in at the factory. I mean, that's just like good. I mean, you do want to have you know, internal storage for your OS, for applications and things you use you know, that are always going to be there. But beyond that, for even your photo library, use anything, you know, certainly backup, extra storage, you know, be able to do that externally is a huge, not just a huge, you know, money saver, it's a huge time saver. You know, when it's time to buy a new machine, you know, if you put a four terabyte drive inside your, your Mac, it's going to go with that Mac. And that's all that data has got to be transferred. If you're using you know, some, an external Thunderblade, external Envoy, you know, something, and that could be still for what you're doing, it's going to give you the same perceived performance. The new, I mean, again, what Apple's doing internally, you know, 7,000 megs a second on these, on these SSDs, is amazing. It's just not a whole lot of applications use all of that. And with external solutions hitting, you know, three, 4,000 megs a second, well, two, 3,000, I guess I should say, sustained, not just burst, which is some of the uh, internal systems, more of a burst versus a sustained, you know, running your photo library externally is imperceptible versus running it internally. And when you do move to a new system in a few years, you know, plug that array and plug it into your new system and it's all there. You know, there's conveniences like that that come with the value and you, you get money savings up front and you get the ability to move to a new system later. And heck, actually one other 
the important thing to me is being able to move that same drive between different systems that you may have right now at the same time and be able to share that data, cut, you know, move, move data very quickly and efficiently you know, to that drive if you need to move between systems, all sorts of good reasons. And, well, and I give one more. You know, if your computer with that four terabyte drive fails in two or three years, you know, hopefully it isn't the case, the expense of replacing it is rather substantial because of the SSD. And you're also paying a premium today for a larger SSD. I mean, SSDs, uh, NVMe in general, will continue to come down over time. There's, you know, I mean, I can, again, I, I wasn't prepared. I could probably talk much more eloquently as I kind of outlined the step-by-step, but there's all sorts of benefits by, you know, certainly minimizing internal storage to a reasonable level and having good external storage for both additional needs, you know, real-time needs, and having a budget that goes to your backup. The only thing that I absolutely suggest everybody maximize in these systems where you know, the memory of soldered you know, would be the memory. You know, do not skimp on memory. You, know, you can't upgrade any, today's Apple Silicon machines are all soldered. I mean, it's all silicon on chip, you know, memory placement. You should really get, certainly if, if I'd, I'd personally recommend, you know, if not 1632, and then of course, if you can use 64, if you believe long-term you have applications to benefit from more memory, you got to buy it with the machine or you have to buy a new machine. Machines that are upgradable still, you know, by all means, you know, we're happy to uh, you know, save a lot there upgrading with OWC. But where you can definitely plug and play external storage, it's going to give you what you want. Don't mess around with memory. In fact, having less memory uh, than you need or should or, or may need in the future is even an impact to its resale value. The machines that do the best are the machines that have you know, the higher levels of uh, memory factory, or this one factory soldered, factory present. Great advice. On the external storage front, you've got some new stuff out there that's, that's pretty terrific. You, first is the Mercury Elite Pro Mini. Give us a little overview of, uh, of what you're doing here. Because you're giving sure. people lots of options with this. Yeah, we've always maintained options, and it's you know, actually something we have discussion of why do we have so many drives, and it's really different needs for different people. The, the, the Elite uh, Mini still provides SSD as well as spinning hard drive options. You know, hard drives, you know, certainly as you get used to an SSD, I mean, it's like going back to dial-up uh, compared to being on broadband for applications, but for backup and other needs, you know, there's really you know, nothing more cost-effective than a physical hard drive. And for even for audio and video editing work, you know, an array of drives in a Thunder Bay or a Thunder Bay agent, I, I don't know why I kind of just a little bit on hard drives, when you can buy multiple drives together. You know, today's drives are faster, quieter, and you know, much higher uh, you know, I.O. per second than, you know, drives from well, every couple of years, they, there's, big, there's been big leaps in hard drives. So even for high-end, these hard drives still have an absolute space where you're just not going to have 96 terabytes of SSD on, on most people's budgets, certainly not my budget. So hard drives have absolutely have a place and the Elite Mini gives you, you know, options for either. Anybody who's traveling a lot, you know, absolutely recommend you know, doing an SSD-based solution just from the point of view that you, know, you can drop an SSD and you know, nothing's really going to happen you know, to it. I mean, there's no risk of, of, of damage, whereas a hard drive, would make, even, when it's, even when it's on, dropping an SSD is not going to do anything. There's no moving parts, but a hard drive spinning, if it takes a hit, you, know, you do run, you run some risks there. You know, fixed in your bag, you're pretty safe. Drives park and they're designed to be rugged. But you know, it, it's just a safety point. If it's something that's being used on the go, an SSD makes a good option. And the Elite Pro Mini gives you some pretty good price points for a variety of different needs. Well, you start out uh, 
you can go from zero, putting your own drives in, up to uh, four terabytes. So, mm -hmm. And the zero gig is a great way if you're migrating from a, an older system. You know, anything uh, you know, 2012 or earlier that's going to have a, uh, the 2016, 13-inch MacBook Pro, you, know, you can pop your drive out of that computer, throw it into the Elite Mini, and connect it to your new Mac. Which you, is you talked you talked about before the 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 hubs that you have and the latest Thunderbolt hub really gives people flexibility that they're not going to get and with the machine as it's sold to you. Let's put it that way. The hub, you know, between our Thunderbolt and we, you know all of our docks, you know, are kind of you know you can pick kind of a dock that's right size for you. You know, if you just need a lot of USB ports, you want the audio and the reader, you know, our Thunderbolt uh, 14 port dock is still, you know, a flagship dock that is in huge demand. Now, if you're somebody who needs, you know, more Thunderbolt ports, you don't need the USBs and the other stuff. You just need more Thunderbolt ports. You know, our Thunderbolt hub is, you know, is the very first you know, solution that lets you connect more Thunderbolts. You plug in one port, it gives you three. It also gives you three chains to where you can have not just six total devices you know plugged into one of your mac ports now you can plug six of actually technically another five devices into each of the three ports it gives you the chain from and all those ports are also power may have bus power thunderbolt you know now you have three ports you can plug a portable bus power drive into all sorts of flexibility you can't get from the uh, the main system really i mean for years and we looked at all sorts of ways to bring something sooner you know we were going to have to work with intel on you know with a solution that was fully supported, fully mandated, you know, to bring additional Thunderbolt ports out. Cause this is something that has been asked for, for uh, since the very first Mac with Thunderbolt ports. Can we have a hub? We have a dock with more ports. And then we have our Thunderbolt 4 uh, 11 port dock, which gives you not just some USBs and audio in and out as well as ethernet, but also gives you just like the hub, it gives you, you know, one Thunderbolt in and three Thunderbolt ports out. So you end up with extra Thunderbolt ports through that solution as well. And all of these docs I just talked about fully power your laptop as well. So it's, you know, I, it's on my desk. And when I go on the road, my, my AC adapter is already in my bag because when I'm home, my laptop's on my desk, plugged into my, to my, Thunderbolt, my Thunderbolt dock. Terrific. And uh, while you started out as being a Mac-centric, I suppose, now you support a, a wide range of machines, right? You know, we've always supported, I mean, it's kind of funny. When we installed our ERP, our first major, uh, how to say, uh, accounting system back in 2000, 2001, you know, it had, unfortunately, been on the PC. There just was not a, a solution that was Mac. Now, we use Macs. All of our team uses Macs, and they use Terminal. So we're using Macs for all the benefits that Mac gives, and then the server in the back room is, you know, runs on, on the PC side. But these folks would constantly say, we just don't have stuff like this on the Windows side. And building to uh, you know what what it takes to really build a product right for Apple, typically in, in the majority of cases provides on average a solution that is far better than you know that typically you find on the PC side. Now we've supported these solutions for years on the PC side, but we've become certainly uh, I, I guess more we've recognized more that we have customers that are using both Mac and PC, and some of the things that used to be Mac only like SoftRaid, you know, now we have SoftRaid for Windows. And the thing about SoftRaid for Windows. It doesn't just give you what you have on the Mac with SoftRaid. It gives you interoperability of your SoftRaid volumes on a Mac. So if you're using one of our uh, Thunder Bay or any of our solutions for SoftRaid on your Macintosh and you go to plug it in on a PC, you know, for, whether it's APFS or HFS Plus for you know, Apple's two you know, standard 
file systems, you can now plug it into a Windows machine with software and those volumes mount and you can now interact, you can read, write, you know, operate it completely normally and you can move it back to your Mac and continue to uh, use it as well. So you can, you can even use, bottom line is you can use our products on both platforms and you can, it's much easier now to interchange data between the two. You know, we absolutely you know, manufacture and design first for Apple. But again, it, the, maintaining the, uh, like I say, the quality and the design and just the requirements to provide a solution on the Apple platform, you know, really gives us some exceptional, exceptional solutions that you know, PC folks also absolutely can benefit and enjoy. And we've got the right support you know, for those workflows as well. And uh, you mentioned design. You've been paying attention to that for a long time. A great design with with your product line. Tell me before we let you go, the, su- the supply chain, how, how difficult things have been for you. You know, I have to give a lot of uh, have, you know, banks and gratitude to, to our logistics team. You know, this year could have been very, very different if we didn't have you know, a great team that was on top of everything. But it's been, you know, it, it's been quite a, uh, well, I look forward to things being a little bit easier. I mean, it's the amount of energy and effort that's gone in just, just to maintaining, you know, baseline supplies this year. You know, we, you know, we always, we always were ahead of the curve, but we had to become much further ahead of the curve. And what was interesting, we learned early that, you know, our manufacturing partners, you know, we bring in a lot of the chipsets that we need. I mean, that's, we control those chipsets for a number of different licensing reasons, you know, we use them in multiple products and it's their long lead time type of thing. So there's, there's things that we've always, you know, managed, but there's other things we got into managing this year because despite, you know, some of the more complex parts you know, we find that, you know, learning some manufacturers, I mean, if it didn't need to be built until May, you know, they were still operating on and just basic parts I mean, little resistors and you know, capacitors, things that, you know, weren't real specialty, you know, they were ordering like, well, just like they did before things got tight and got interesting and suddenly we'd have a, a penny part holding up, you know, a, well, a much more expensive solution. So over, I mean, the entire supply chain, uh, you know, whether it be on the shipping side, dealing with really expensive and far longer uh, delivery times by ocean, you know, substantially increased air and even delays in air. I mean, sometimes today you'll pay for air shipment and it's still three weeks you're going to pay you know, 5x what it was a year ago, and it's still three weeks for delivery. So our team has done a great job adjusting to you know, a lot of interesting and unpredictable events out there. We've taken in, we've had to shift a lot more of the component buying to our own team. And we designed the products, we know what they take, and have gone you know, much further and put a lot more investment out to have components re-available so that it is in a, a nickel part, or even a dollar part or a $5 part it holds up a solution. You know, the biggest, the biggest products, most important products that you know are, are unfortunately impacted this year were mostly our newer products because we had no uh, you know, previous run on them and thus had not you know, built up that had those orders in place really 18 months ago because product even even things that were ordered. And this is the hardest thing. You know, you place an order today and you're told there's a 20 week lead time or 24 week lead time, you know, for a particular component. You know, when that manufacturer, that chipset supplier comes back, you know, six weeks later or sometimes you know, 20 weeks later, right before they're supposed to be delivering and says, well, now it's a 52-week lead time. Those are things that are difficult to uh, unfortunately accommodate. So once we get into role, you know, we're in a position where next year will be far better. And the other thing our team was real good at, I mean, where we had to, whether it's Popeyes, they're going into the market, you know, working, I have to say, good 
know, we have a good partnership with Intel, which was you know, very positive on some of the chipsets dependent on Thunderbolt solutions. No issues with Intel and Thunderbolt chipsets. It's more the, the parts around it. But you know, we're, we're really happy that we're delivering Thunderbolt uh, hubs and docks right now, just on the basis that you have, I mean, there's a lot of complicated chipsets that interact in those solutions. And it's been pretty crazy logistically bringing all those components together. The amount of energy that has gone into supply chain this year you know, is, is beyond anything I would have imagined. And the best part, you know, I have to see the silver lining and the silver lining is as things do improve. And I do believe by, certainly by this time next year, hopefully by summer next year, there'll be substantial improvements in how things are flowing you know, with what we've learned and what we've been able to do in the rather more complex circumstances you know, should allow us to be more efficient and agile when it goes to normal times. But it's, if you know, this was five years ago and this had happened, you know, in terms of how we were able to operate then from a complex level, I mean, who we effectively outsource our logistics to back at that point in time, it would have been very, very different. And I, so. and I imagine COVID has been kind of a double-edged sword for you too, because so many people needing machines upgraded and, and uh, more storage in a, in a home office, as well as you know, still having uh, some office environments. Yeah, COVID, I, I guess sales sales have been good that way, but I don't know how it's been for your workforce. <laughs> yeah, COVID, you know, we, I mean, COVID drove, you know, us to do, a, for the first time, a big work from home uh, contingent. We, you know, we've been, we dabble with work from home, but it was literally within two weeks time, we went to being roughly 70% work from home from being about 5% work from home at any given point. And by and large, it, it's worked out real well. We were ready for it. I mean, Thankfully, all the equipment literally was take it home, plug it in, and you know we'll activate the VPN, and now your your phones and your your technology works remote. But it it certainly was an adjustment, and the you know, the other aspect is you know, less so on on our side. But you know, in addition to everything else going on logistically, you know, every other month there's a delay because there's been a COVID outbreak, you know, in this area, so this factory has to shut down or this chipset supplier has shut their lines down because there's, they're being quarantined or the government has imposed a shutdown. Now, these are things that I you know, could never imagine that I do, you know, well, the Omicron is mild like the cold and we can get past, you know, a point where, you know, COVID is a great fear. You know, it's not going to go away. I don't think vaccines are necessarily going to be the, uh, the, the all end all to COVID. And ultimately we just need to get through this phase, get, you know, whether you know, vaccines are making a big difference, certainly you know, different natural immunity, I think you know, will play and hopefully this thing evolves into something that you know, will prevent the next, uh, you know, every reaction to a new whatever being a lockdown because it's, we're not gonna beat it that way, I don't believe, but it's certain, however we're gonna, however we beat it, however we get past it, I look forward to being past it because it's been, it's, it's, it's a scary thing you know, for a lot of people and rightfully so, and it's certainly impactful in many, many ways. And the things that you know we deal with are, I mean, they're technology. I mean, it's an inconvenience if you can't get a dock. It's not, it's certainly not necessarily gonna, well, it might ruin your day, but not, not to the degree of a supply chain breakdown and you know, food or medicine or other essential goods. And you know, that'd be my, that's my biggest concern, you know, how close we are with supply chain to the, the essentials that we need, as opposed to you know, these, well, I won't call them necessarily non-essentials, but this, certainly less essentials. Terrific, Larry. So for more info on the on the products, the best place is owcdigital.com? Uh, you can go to owc.com. Yeah, we, this is our new website. That, that kind of gives you a directory today. In another few weeks, it's going to be 
you know, substantially uh, enhanced. But you can go to maxsales.com, owbc.com, or certainly owbcdigital.com has got information. But I started owbc.com. It's got an overview of the different different units, different different things we're involved with, and it's you know, it's pretty. I, I think it's pretty enlightening. But you know, wherever you go, again, we appreciate you, you know, using our solutions. You know, we have lots of good channel partners. You know, us direct anywhere. Thank you for using our product, and you know, we know why we're here, and we you know, look forward to continue you know, being here for you. Well, congratulations on the innovations. Larry O'Connor, thanks for taking the time with us. Hey, always a pleasure, Fred. Thank you. Thank you for your time here as well. Now this. It takes a lot of listening to build a better radio, and that's just what the folks at Sea Crane have done. Bob Crane and his crew, nestled among the rivers and tallest trees in the world in Fortuna, California, have made a habit of listening to their customers. And that's just what they've done in building the CC Skywave SSB, the Swiss Army knife of portable radios. For everyday listening to AM or FM in the yard or patio or on the nightstand, without having to drain a mobile phone battery, it's a great companion. But it is also a companion equipped for NOAA weather information and alerts that can be life-saving. You can listen to FEMA and Coast Guard transmissions, too. Beyond all of that, you can tune into shortwave signals from around the world. It's compact, easy to take with you, and built to last. The CC Skywave SSB. Click on the link at textonation.com. Discount Tire is hosting a hiring event on Wednesday, December 8th at 8485 Holcomb Bridge Road from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. Named Best Place to Work by Glassdoor four years in a row. We offer a defined career path and paid training. That's why 100% of our store managers have been promoted from within. A recent MIT study puts Discount Tire in the top 25 highest integrity workplaces in the Culture 500. RSVP now and get started on your career today. Because at Discount Tire, we're changing more than just tires. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on iTunes. Prepared for creating, growing, and sustaining your wealth? The Pain Points of Wealth podcast gives you a dynamic, multi-generational perspective. Listen to the Pain Points of Wealth and hear Ryan Payne, his dad and brother, with their simple three-generation approach. Our guidance is critical for both men and women. We'll walk you through whatever stage of the journey you're in. Our family goal is to get you to financial independence. Click on the banner to subscribe. So yeah, excellent. Well, hey, this is uh, this is going to be episode one, and uh, we're really excited to get things started. And episode one is just going to be a simple introduction. So my name is Nate Fochman uh, with the Freemind Group, founder, and uh, we'll call it the uh, sales director. And uh, we have uh, Churchin, and uh, let him introduce himself. Uh, Churchin Lichtenstein, and with the National Account Craft Management Group, and uh, excited to be here, Nate. Excited to be excellent. here. <laughs> I want to, you know, this past summer. You know, it was uh, it was great to kind of reconnect with you and really start kind of building a collaborative program where we can offer the types of services for sales and marketing to help small and medium sized businesses, uh, you know, specifically in the alcohol, but also beyond uh, to help them navigate through the wholesale expansion and kind of initially just want to talk a little bit about you and I, how we met and what kind of experiences we've had 
and, and kind of how that brings a unique experience that we're able to give to our customers and clients. So I guess um, looking back, I mean, we when we first connected, uh, we had crossed paths a few times when uh, back when I was working in Philadelphia in uh, late 2000 or 2000 area, uh, late 2008 to before, I guess you were, you would have been uh, with Stone at that point. And yep. we would have been crossing some paths there, but not as much as as uh, when I was at Ace and uh, we were probably in mid 2000 teens and kind of reaching out to to connect with you. And, and when you're at Ithaca to kind of touch base and serving as a role on the wholesaler side of things. And then you on the on the Ithaca side kind of walk me through your journey from working backwards from here. We are sitting now in a on a Zoom meeting in 2021 <laughs> to your your beginnings in, in the alcohol industry. And we'll we'll cross the bridge to our connection there, but kind of where you got your teeth, cut your teeth in and moving on. Yeah. Um, it's kind of a reset button for me to decide, you know, how I wanted to go forward in this career and, uh, and in the beer business in general. And, and it didn't seem to me that we were going to go back to the normal, um, you know, chasing draft lines, you know, traditional style of selling beer. Um, and so I need to come up with a new idea. And so I started a company uh, to focus on, handling national accounts for breweries mid-sized level that might not be able to uh, afford a full-time national account person handling chains. Um, wasn't necessarily in the place to hire someone at that time for that kind of money, uh, but still wanted that share of mine in grocery. Um, and so I started this company. It allowed me to you know, work virtually. It allowed me to be home uh, more for the kids and really kind of get a nice work balance with my, you know, my personal life. And so you know, we crossed paths because, you know, what you and I were doing was similar, uh, but kind of filled a need for each other's companies, um, you know, handling independence and, and me handling the chains. And then I think, uh, you know, it's kind of morphed even from there, uh, seeing, you know, our, you know, our experience in this field and, and what we're capable of and all the other little things that we did for the companies that we worked for. And it's kind of morphed into a, a much larger company and much larger roles and offering much more in-depth uh, services to companies and breweries and distilleries and really any company that is, is looking to expand in today's market and, and wanted a new outside the box thinking and on how to handle sales uh, and growth. Um, you know, before this, I was with Stone for, you know, three and a half years, maybe a little more in uh, managing territories and, and some reps underneath me, you know, in the Northeast and then branching out into Ontario, Canada. So making me an international beer salesman, which is, you know, similar to James Bond in my mind. Um, and then, uh, you know, before that, I was, um, let me take a step back. In between now and Stone, I worked for uh, a regional brewery that was just kind of cutting their teeth and, and looking to expand into multiple states. Um, and so I, I went on as their sales director and, you know, we ex and helped them expand into three more states, you know, up production to... <laughs> a pretty incredible level as well as managing their group hub. Um, and before that I was with stone. And then before that I was where, where, where we met, I was with Ithaca uh, running their sales department, doing similar, you know, expansion, you know, taking them from, you know, I think it was 16 to 17,000 barrels to, you know, almost 24,000 barrels in a two year period um, with multiple state expansion and growth, uh, signing new distributors and whatnot. Uh, and before that, uh, I started, I kind of cut my teeth in the beer business, working for Harpoon uh, for almost three years as well, just as kind of a market manager and, you know, getting my feet under me and understanding how distributors work. Um, because before that, I came from the on-premise world and, and it managed nightclubs and restaurants and bars 
for almost 12 years. So it was, it was a little bit of a change and, and Harpoon let me kind of understand the business, see how everything worked uh, at a time when craft beer was just absolutely exploding. Um, it was, it was unique period in time, especially in this business where we were going to, from seeing, you know, maybe a Sam Adams tap line in every bar to three to four craft lines in every bar and some, you know, smaller breweries that, you know, didn't have national distribution and, and kind of that craft beer, you know, wave just hitting. It was, it was a perfect time for me to get into the business unbeknownst to, to me, but uh, it just happened to work out. It was perfect timing um, and led me to be successful in the career right now. That's, that's, that's great. I, I um, didn't realize how extensive you, I mean, as far as the on-premise side of things, that's, that's actually, uh, that gives you a really balanced approach to what you're doing. So you, yeah, you have to work on the other side of the on-premise as well as on the, on the, on the supplier side of things. Yeah, I think it was at a time when breweries, especially craft breweries, were looking uh, for an opportunity into to, you know, some mass distribution and really uh, looking at, at growth. And I think they sought out people that were maybe either managing craft or managing beer stores or, you know, to try to get that on premise um, relevance. They were looking for people that understood uh, what made restaurants tick, how you got draft lines, how we chose what purveyors we worked with. And. Um, you know, figured that maybe people coming from that side of it, A, were comfortable, you know, speaking with people and lots of different people all the time, but also uh, had an understanding of, of the business from the other side and could potentially give some insight into, um, you know, how do we gain distribution? How do we gain points of placement in on-premise specifically, you know, then hoping to lead into those off-premise buys. So walk me through a little bit in speaking about in the chain part of things. Kind of talk me through what what the differences are in, in selling and, and placing in chain as opposed to selling and placing in independent channels. Sure. I mean, it's a lot of it is um, one point of contact for chains, <laughs> um, but the higher expectation for information, uh, you know, you can be the rep on the on-premise or independent side that they forms a relationship with one of the buyers. You know, you're driving around all day. You're able to, they like you as a person. And so they can say, hey, we really like you. We're going to give you a shot in you know this placement in an independent store or a bar owner might be like i'll give you a draft line you know based on your personality and in some and and also the beer had to be good um whereas with dealing with chain you're looking at more data-driven stats and you're saying hey look i you know these are the kind of points of distribution all around your chain these are how we're selling this is what the pull through looks like you know these are you know you're looking further ahead to programming and saying hey you know we have this rotational series that you know, shares a UPC that we think, you know, would work really well for the whole year. So, you know, chains was more data-driven analysis, um, you know, metrics in not as much, hey, like we really like you, you're a cool guy. You know, chains are making decisions based on potentially hundreds of stores and what's going to work. And just because they like you doesn't necessarily mean that, that your product is going to sell in their stores. And they may still really like you and that's a portion of it, but that gets your foot in the door to get those spots in chain and to get those authorizations. You really have to know what you're talking about. You really have to understand the data that drives consumers um, and you have to be willing to work sometimes on price and margins and some other things where, you know, it's a more personal relationship when you're dealing with independence and, um, you know, mom and pops is, I guess, the term that we could use. Yeah, that's, that's, that's an interesting perspective. Yeah. It's, it's, um, you know, there's so many elements to, to what, what we do and in, in, as an industry, not specifically even just us, it's every aspect of it. And I think a lot of times uh, people lose sight of what the, how many touch points, let's say, um, you know, a, a candy bar on the, on the end cap of a display at, at the grocery store versus, you know, a pint of beer at the, at the bar that they go to, they don't think much of it. 
because it's a commodity thing and it's recreational and it's a place of enjoyment. They don't think about all the processes that get in there. I mean, I think about in 2003, when I started, it was, I started in breakage. So I sat yeah. in the back of a warehouse and, in a, and overnight and all, all night, no big shifts and beer, the broken cases of beer that fell off the truck. I fixed them, put them back together, cleaned them, you know, did everything, put the codes back on them, set the expiration date to, you know, and then really got it back up there and, and kind of made sure of that piece. And then from there went to merchandising and went out on truck driving and then went out with a sales route and stuff. And it's like getting to see all aspects of, you know, and, and then the warehouse, the delivery guys, the operations, the HR, the customer service rooms, the cubicle farms that exist in the back yeah. of the house and all of the massive moving parts that people don't realize is what gets that liquid into that glass to have you enjoy your time out with your friends. And I think, sure. you know, that's something that I hope that, that this program specifically, this podcast, we are, you know, we want to really focus on the stories and the narratives and the origins of, of, of the founders being yourself and, and me. And then also when we talk about our guests, those guys and girls that are going to be bringing out their stories and not just founders too, leaders, you know, and it's just, it's a matter of anyone that can, has a, has a real story and an origin and a narrative that can show what it's all about and about, it's about the beer and about the liquid and about, the, it's not even just, we're not going to do just beer. We're doing snacks. We're going to have some stuff about some e-commerce uh, founders and really trying to cover every aspect of every vendor that exists in the market to be able to give consumers as well as other industry people uh, a real kind of full scope approach. And I think even sure. people that work in the industry have, tr- have trouble understanding how much, how many moving parts are in the industry. I think it's really until you walk into a trade show floor and you see all the vendors. I think that's really when it starts to hit you as far as how many things. But also, I mean, you know, you ask around, you get there. So, Sure. And I, and I think even now, even from when we began, there is a completely different world. on, um, And there's a little bit of a cycle that we've seen. But, you know, how these products get to market and how distributors choose which brands, which breweries, which distilleries, which snack companies uh, they're going to, they're going to support. And um, you know, it's, it started with the story and everybody wanted to know craft beer was up and coming and everyone wanted to know the story of the, of the brewery and, and why it got there and who is this. And, you know, then it, it shifted to, there was so many of those stories. It was more about, you know, what's the hot new thing? How many, you know, how many different releases can you give me and how, you know, how, you know, limited are they? And I want the stuff that no one else can get. And, you know, now then it's, you know, it's shifted a little bit more into consistency and making sure that, you know, the product, you know, if you buy this can or this bottle, or you ask for that pint behind the bar, that it's going to be, you know, it went through a lab, it was tested, it was consistent, you know, it's going to be the same one you had in the stores, what you had on draft. Um, And then I think, you know, and, and all these things I think are still prevalent in, you know, what drives a consumer, but um, I think we've come back a little bit into, you know, since, you know, since the shutdown where, you know, people want, they want to, they, they, they want to have trust in what they're buying again. And, and what's most important to them is, you know, there's so many different choices that sometimes are going to be overwhelming. So they want a brand that they know is good, that they know is something that they enjoy, um, that still might be different. And, and so going almost back to that story of the brewery and, and connecting with, uh, you know, the people that are making the product it has become more important again. And, um, you know, less is the, the limited availability though. It's, it's obviously still going to be there, but it can be limited and not very good or they right. rushed it through. And, you know, so the consumer has been, you know, they've educated as much as any of us going through is they've educated on their purchasing and what they want. And I think that, uh, you know, that can knowing, feeling that connection to, you know, whoever makes the product that they're buying, um, trusting it, you know, and the consistency of the product that, that, that they're buying, uh, as well as, you know, feeling like 
they've made a cool choice as well. I think it, it's, it's a small portion of all of them. It's, it's an interesting ride that we've taken. And, you know, so now we've had to look on how to support, you know, the, the suppliers getting that to market and how we do it effectively hitting all those touch points. And I think, you know, having people on something like this to talk about their story, but also, you know, the struggles and how they got here and, and how they persevered. And I think that there's an interest out there for people that are, they want to know how this brewery survived, you know, yep. the, you know, a lot of us, there are a lot of those, those suppliers did not, and they had to shut their doors. And um, how did, how did whatever ones that are sold around, how did they survive? And is their product consistent or did they just have a massive production facility and they were able to withstand it? I, I think a lot of those things are going to go, consumers are interested in that kind of stuff though. Yes. And uh, just so anybody uh, will kind of cut back in any, anybody that does know uh, there will be uh, possibly random children or dogs or parakeets <laughs> or whatever else that might come through on this, just like anybody else experienced, but we'll yeah, kind of jump back over to, uh, to talking most about most likely there will be some children uh, guest appearances. <laughs> and that's, I mean, but I think that that's also part of uh, you know, the world we live in today. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that, you know, moms, dads that are working from home. And the reality is, is that, you know, we have children that are home and sometimes not by our choice. Uh, and I think, you know, but that's the same. I, I think a lot of people experience that, though. And, you know, how do you navigate Zoom calls around kids being at home and still being effective in what you do? Um, and you can still be productive. I think it's a new I think that touches on, a, you know, a new world that we live in where you can have both. You know, you can have a, a, a place where your kids are around and you're still productive at home. And, you know, the, you know, it's it. I think we're, we're headed for some, a completely new way of doing business. And um, I think people that, that understand that and, and can get behind it are going to be the most successful. So I think, uh, you know, I think that is kind of relevant to what we're talking about. Absolutely. And it is. And really, and going back to, to that adversity, I mean, that's also, that's also part of it. I mean, as, as much as it is like, yes, adversity from a financial standpoint, from a things closing, it's adversity of distraction and focus. And I think it's really, it's really weaned out a lot of, of types of, of really t- kind of allow people to trim the fat, so to speak. So it's like, sure. do I really need to be there? Do, is this meeting really important? Is this yeah. just an email? And I think like leading into COVID, I mean, we were all very email or not, excuse me, back up meeting oriented and meeting heavy. And, you know, how many meetings you walk out of and you're like, that could have been an email. It could have been text messages. And honestly, that hasn't, I've not had one unimportant meeting yet since COVID happened. And I yep. think that's really, I think about, about that too. It's like all those kind of things that drowned on forever. And, uh, but one of those things that kind of go in there, but uh, coming back to adversity, it's, it's, uh, you know, going into COVID, it's really, it laid out for businesses who had their business structure set who knew what they were doing, who had the infrastructure and who had the finances to, to, to withstand it. And not at the end of the day too, a whole separate group is who was resourceful and who had the creativity to, there's some things that I saw during, like personally for me, I, I partnered with uh, one of my clients, uh, Hollis Spirits, a distillery here in York, Pennsylvania. And I partnered with them and we did, we went through the whole uh, WHO formulas for the sanitizer. So we produced and sold sanitizer in the beginning of COVID, March, April, May, June, and, uh, and that kind of kept things afloat for, for a while, as well as we did uh, curbside pickups and things like that. And they did a few, they created their, expanded their direct to shipping, uh, direct to consumer program. And I think that changed everyone's mindset. And obviously it's for everybody. And it really became, how do I, how do I get as much out of this as possible and also survive at the same time without being so inefficient that we don't get anywhere. And I think that's, um, 
that that that's a real compliment to anyone that is existing still today as uh, as within the business or infrastructure that they were going out of it. And then aside from people from owners, just simply employees that you know might need direction and, and might be hands on. And there's a whole nother group of employees that didn't have the opportunity to work from home, you know, and that's really and then, and then that became that mental piece is, OK, now I'm going to go in a crowd of people during the middle of a pandemic and, and do my job. And, and do my job effectively and do my job well. And it's, it's so many different, you know, experiences that different people had, you know, during, during COVID and not to focus too much on COVID during this conversation, but it's, uh, it's definitely going to come up throughout our conversations with all these guests because it really has changed everyone's, you know, perception moving forward as well as everyone's trajectory moving forward. And I think that uh, it's, you know, anyway, it's going to be important. Um, talking a little bit about for let's kind of we'll keep the come back to to us a little bit and some some anecdotal sure. things and stuff. And I really think um, kind of just really off the wall, like what do you think? You know, eighteen year old Churchin, like what do you what what does he what does he think about this guy? And then what does this guy give that guy a heads up and say, hey, save your time and uh, pivot here or, <laughs> or ignore that? Uh, well, eighteen year old Churchin was probably on fish tour, and uh, <laughs> so. Uh, what I was thinking at the time was not necessarily about this age, um, but I think, you know. Status is important to all of us. Particularly, your HIV status can influence your health and well-being. Do you know your status? Surge GNR can help with free HIV testing, at-home testing, condoms by mail subscriptions, and prescriptions for medications that can protect you from contracting HIV, known as PrEP. Stay healthy, protected, and prepared, no matter the status of your relationship. Learn more at surgegnr.com. That 18-year-old person would probably look at me and be shocked that uh, I've been able to transition um, and find success, you know, in, in, in many different ways, right? So I think, you know, looking at me, and, and I'm sure he'd be like, man, boomer, like, what are you doing, man? Like, like, how are you not out every night? How many kids do you have? I, I'm not, I'm not quite sure that I'm, that 18 person was ready for that. Let me pause um, real quick. I will take the comment of the kids thing for us. So we can just establish that in the beginning. The odds of having a child run across the screen are pretty high. I have six yeah. in my house and, and <laughs> you have and four. I, right? I have, I have at least four in mine. So <laughs> at least four in mine. And, 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 it, and there could be, I mean, <laughs> at any t- point in time, there could be up to eight. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it, you know, it, it, it's, it's interesting because 18-year-old Cherson thinking about having, you know, four children and uh, his own company and, you know, making it all work uh, would probably have sent him into a tailspin. <laughs> um, but, but I think, you know, the, what's interesting is, is I think that they would, that, that that person would probably be pleasantly surprised that that i've been able to keep you know i'm still going to fish shows so i've been able to keep um you know some of who i was back then and what drove me and what was exciting about life back then and didn't lose it all you know it's not something that you know i'm so wrapped up nowadays that uh, i forgot what it's like to be that kid um and and hopefully be able to use some of those things that i was you know having fun with back then in today, you know, and, and keeping that as a part of my personality that I didn't lose track of, of how I got to where I'm at. Um, and, and I think me, you know, me looking back at that kid, uh, you know, there's, you know, it, there's so many mistakes along the way uh, in different situations that I, w- I wish I would have done differently, or maybe I wish I would have, you know, focused more on school at this point in my life, or I would have, 
you know, taking this job instead of this job. Um, but I think everybody is who they are because of what they went through. And, and even the, you know, the intense struggles that I went through from 18 to now, um, I, I don't know that I'd be the same person or that I'd be as good at what I do now without having learned those lessons the hard way. Um, and now I really sound like a boomer, but like, you know, I mean, like th thinking back and saying, man, those mistakes were really tough at the time, but they shaped, you know, my perseverance. So they shaped the ability to say, to hear no and say, that's all right. I, the next, I will go find the next thing then, or, you know, I didn't get this sale and, you know, taking time to step back and go, why didn't I get that sale? And because I went through what I, I had, uh, I, that didn't, that didn't stop me or that didn't crush my dreams at that point. I was, I was able to hear no and say, it's been worse. Let's move on. And, and um, so I think that, you know, even though there was a ton of things I wish I might have done differently, or maybe, you know, made my life easier. I think uh, as long as the continued success happens, um, you need to go through that stuff. You need to go through those struggles uh, and, and persevere and realize that uh, tomorrow's coming anyways, you know, the sun's going to rise again, man periods you know been doing this for 17 years now and there's periods where for both of us it, it's yeah. these highs and lows and some of it has everything to do with work and some of it doesn't but affects work and i think that that's really but the key is i think looking back at it and being reflective and i've kind of you know we, we we you know in our in our elder years now let's say looking back at those like mid 20s to late 20s i mean we both we both got started in all this whether it was on on-premise at retail or restaurants bars nightclubs I mean, I was bouncer, you know, working that stuff right out of high school. I got in basically is right out of high school. I got right in the industry yeah. and thinking about like looking at that person, that 18 to whatever person versus today is just, it's like you said, it's night and day. And it's actually, it's great that, you know, and for you, you're, you're taking your generate, your next generation, your kids to those concerts and bringing them into your personal experiences of your life. And I think that's, so important, you know, it's, and it's cause it's a piece where they get to see a piece of you, but then they also get to create their own personalities as well and carry that for forward. Sure. And, and I think that, you know, th that'll be the frustrating part for us as dads and, I, and, and, and is really like teaching them and saying, this is what I did. And you don't have to do this <laughs> knowing that our dads did the same thing and our family did the same thing. And we still did it, you know, yeah. we still did some of that stuff. And I think we got it. We'll get comfortable with it. But yeah, um, I, th I think build, building on that kind of that point that you just made of, you know, taking my kids to shows, uh, but then I also work out of the house. So they see that, you know, uh, it, there is a balance, right? So, you know, and, and I think this kind of touches back to the, the whole COVID world is they didn't get to necessarily see how hard I worked um, when I just left every morning and I came back, you know, sometimes at nine o'clock at night and, you know, they're just like, oh, dad went to work. Whereas, you know, they're seeing me here. They're asking questions about PowerPoints. They're asking, you know, how did I do that on an Excel file? You know, they're learning some of that stuff in, you know, school right now. So to see, that, you know, the application of that in real life, uh, I think is also pretty cool. And, but at the same time, knowing that, you know, it, it's okay to go and, you know, take two nights in camp and go see fish or the dead and, um, and, you know, and leave that stuff behind. Because I, I, I think, you know, growing up, kids don't necessarily always get to see how parents manage that, right? Like they don't get to see the, the work-life balance or they don't get to see, they just see the parents go to work and then, the parents come home mm -hmm. and sometimes they see their parents on their laptop. So 11 o'clock at night and they just assume, you know, it's all work and um, you know, there's vacations. Whereas the model that, I, that, that we've shifted to, at least in this house is that it's, it's a, it's a, it, it could, one hour could be jumping on the trampoline and teaching them how to do flips. And then the next, Hey guys, we got to jump and do some homework and I got to get on my laptop. Um, and so I think, you know, it, it's given me at least the ability to, um, 
make everything, you know, example, you know what I mean? They, they get to see everything and they get to see how I manage, you know, um, schedules and fun time and personal time and how sometimes dad's phone is just off and he can't take a call. Or uh, I think that's important because that sometimes I think got lost and, and, and it was and not necessarily realizing that that was the case until, you know, this is the situation. And I step back and I go, wow, like my kids just probably thought I went to this magical building where they make beer. And then, you know, I came home and sometimes I was angry and sometimes I wasn't, and, um, you know, now they get to see behind the curtain, you know, that like, what is the grand wizard actually doing? And, and, uh, I think that's important lessons for the kids too. So it's, um, you know, it, it, it's, and I think our kids will probably be topics a lot here. Um, but I think that that's important. And I think that's a good point. And I think it's something to kind of focus on is that, it, we're not just, you know, here to make money. We're not here to just um, sell beer. I think that uh, we're real people too. And, you know, and making us human in that way uh, is important. And I think it, it, even in sales, when, you know what I mean? When, if you're on a Zoom call and your kid jumps in and, you know, you're like, you, before you might've been like, oh my God, I'm so embarrassed. <laughs> Nowadays, the person on the other line is like, don't worry, mine's right here too. Right, right? Right. And so I think it, 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 it adds a level of connection to people that we're, we're kind of all in the same spot. You know, we're all in the same world. We're dealing with things that we didn't have to do before. Um, and that's amazing, you know, and, and it's still, it can still be successful. Absolutely. I think the, 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 the other thing, not to uh, kind of one more thing on that 18 year old self is, is looking back yeah. at that person. And I think one of the, on the, on the, we talked about the negative thesis, but I think one of the positives is for me, and I'm sure you're the same type of person when it comes to this, you know, when I was working, I think about when I was working in Philadelphia at the wholesaler, you know, it was always tons of things where like I was, you know, young and 18 to whatever and 21. And then when I came out on the sales route, you know, we, you know, there's times where it was like, Oh, can you cover this promotion? Like some guy, it was, it was the dads and, and the moms that like had things yeah. come up and they had a, they had some promotion going on and they were like, Hey, can you go cover that for me? And I became like, I had no, I, I was single. I was, you know, in, in college at Drexel and I, and I just was like every other night I was doing these bar scenes and it was, it was really like pumping these promotions, pumping these promotions. And I got to know so many people. And, and that's at the end, what I'm trying to get at is, you know, getting out so much right off the bat and not being shy and not, not being afraid, not shy in a bad way, because like, I'm, I'm sometimes shy. Like I sometimes don't like interacting. And so like, I like to be by myself sometimes too, believe it or not, I'm extremely extroverted, but I have my introvert yeah. tendencies sometimes. My point being is that, you know, allowing yourself when you're that age to not have limits to an extent because you need to have limits later. Right. So like, I really like not to like break yourself and kill yourself, like working every night yeah. of the week. But I remember like I went hard and it was like, it was just hard as far as whether it was from the partying or also like from the, from the piece of the learning piece. And it was like, I asked, I, bo I bored the hell out of people like asking yep. them so many questions and sitting in as a merchandiser or riding on a truck with somebody it was asking them their story, asking them their questions, how they get started in this and what interested them and really trying to understand. Because for me, I didn't know anybody that sold, that sold alcohol period or anything alcohol related. And this yep. was the, you know, to me, it was like, okay, I'm going to join this industry that no one else has ever done before in my family or that I've ever known. And, uh, you know, I had a buddy that got, got me uh, interested in it and, and worked at the wholesaler and said, Hey, come in as breakage and it's a summertime. It was supposed to be 90 days. And here I am 17 years later, right. and, uh, you know, I was, I was in a summer internship fixing cases of Corona and here I am. Uh, doing this. But, um, yeah. I, yeah. I think you're right. I think those, uh, you know, the, the going hard in those 18, when you're 18 and whatever experiences, if it was on fish tour and, and just learning to travel to city to city without knowing anybody, 
um, it, it surprisingly served me well with the beer industry. I could, I would travel to West Virginia and walk into an account and have absolutely no idea who even the distributor was or who they were, but not the reps and just cold walking in and making friends, you know? And, and I think, you know, when we, you look back and you, you say, what, where did I learn these skills? You know? And, and, and it's, it's sometimes funny to be like, Oh, it was on fish tour or it was yeah. on, you know, it was, it was drinking at the bars and just, trying to make friends in a new city you know i mean i think it, you know some of those things we look back and they're like oh like that was just me messing around but it was it was learning how to do some very integral sales things and uh it, it's it's funny to the question is funny to, to look back and say to see that path of how you got to where you're at uh, as much as i realize like <laughs> that this industry is like just fun and it's yeah. like in every aspect whether you're a brewery a distillery a winery whether you're the guy that makes the bloody Mary mixes, whether you're the beef jerky and potato chip guy, if you, I mean, I'm sure, I'm not sure how like the Lay's con conventions and the Lay's promotions go, but I can't imagine like, you know, there's a, a boss that I had that always used to say, uh, every time we'd be at a convention drinking a beer at 9am doing a sampling, he'd be like, I wonder what the toothpaste and napkin salesmen are doing today. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's just that unique experience that yeah. that's true it's it's really true it's just uh you know the, the people that that join an industry that are a social industry that for fun and it's at the end of the day i always go back to that moment and i think about that a lot when i get overly stressed and i say you know what as long as we're doing what we're doing the people will always be excited and because at the end of the day we're delivering happiness you know we're really just getting the getting there to bring their social experiences to another level and I think it's interesting that that's a good point you kind of touched on. Uh, it is a social industry or industry, right? Like it, it is, you know, based on connections and people and events. And, you know, so when we, you know, to bring this back to kind of, you know, how, how do we function in this ever-changing world? How do we continue to keep it fun? How do we continue to be successful uh, when that's how we came up, right? Like we came up by duct taping promo <laughs> stuff to your back and riding it to a bar because that's what needed to happen or how many times, you picked a keg up at eight o'clock at night from a distributor and had to find somebody with the key just to get, you know what I mean? Just to get it to the event because it didn't make the truck. Um, you know, with this shifting world now, how do breweries compete in that? You know, how do they compete in, in a world that, you know, we're not necessarily like that anymore where we're not so focused on, you know, you know, it's, it's more about efficiency and getting, you know, good product and throwing um, meaningful events and not just 150 of them. And, and so I think that, you know, those are the kind of topics that, you know, hearing from a brewery that stayed successful through COVID, like you, you in, in hearing those stories about, you know, how, how did you manage it through? What, what's different for you nowadays? What, what's making you successful? What's, what's a challenge you didn't foresee? I think those kind of things um, are what's going to make, you know, a, the, this prop, this podcast cool to listen to. Um, and, and people want to hear that kind of stuff and people want to share that story. You know what I mean? They did persevere. They did go through so much stuff. Like they want to share that story of like, this is what we did, man. This is the struggle. And this is how we came out the other side. Um, and I, and so I think it's important to have that kind of stuff because I think that's how we get better. I think hearing how, you know, a distillery in New Mexico was able to, you know, persevere through, you know, uh, the challenges of a being small and looking for distribution and B developing new products and becoming more savvy in, in, in how they deliver them um, to, you know, a major player uh, in the Northeast that, is looking for relevance in a sea of, you know, the big boys throwing big dollars and the little guys delivering themselves. Like how, how does that mid-level brewery that used to be a name brand shelf, like on the shelf is now looking to say, 
well, what do I do now? You know, I, I don't, the old things don't compete. This is how I made it through. I, I think that all of those stories um, are important. And I think, and I think, you know, sharing those and, and hearing those with, with people in, in the, in the industry as well as people out, not in the industry that are looking at it from like the outside and didn't have any idea that they had to go through that kind of stuff to be successful. And I think that those are perfect points. And I think that the other thing too, to drive home to, to everybody that's, that's, that's listening or watching is there's not going to be any beer reviews on this. This is, this is not going to be where we give our opinions about uh, taste profiles and it's not going to be us sniffing the bouquets and talking about the IPUs all the time. <laughs> I mean, this is really, this is about the stories. I mean, there might be talk about beers, but there's a story behind a beer, you know, and we want to kind of, we might want to talk about the branding and all kinds of elaborate stories that lead into a product. But um, just so everybody knows, this is not this, the, the same podcast that you listen to to find out uh, what what things on untapped. There's, 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 plen- there's plenty there's, of people out there's there. There's thousands of those. So we're, we're... The beer or like what, what, what the gravity was. It, yeah. that's, it, I, I, I think that's a good point. This is not what we're here to talk about. Um, you know, we're here to talk about what does it look like going forward, the industry in general, or how did we get to this point? And, um, you know, who who was successful, who wasn't successful. You know, I, th- I think those are the really the key points. And I think, but I think talking about specific beers is okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and we may say we really enjoyed this, but I, I don't think that we're going to be talking about, you need to go buy ABC right. or, Hey, don't forget to check out this one or some nicely placed <laughs> like advertisements like, Oh, this Coca-Cola was deli- the Wayne's world <laughs> whole thing. So what, one last thing, one last thing I'll, I'll do each time is a, is a piece of advice. And so one of the things is I want to, it'll be a common theme going through this towards the tail end of, the, of each of the podcasts is looking at, we know a thousand people that say, oh, you sell alcohol for a living. That must be so fun. We all know it's just a job. We all know it's full. We on the other side know it's full of Excel files. It's full of presentations. It's full of every single thing that every job has, but with that said, if you were to encourage someone to come over, what is it like a key trait or something that some skill set that is kind of undeniable? And we can focus specifically on sales and marketing for this question, because otherwise it could be very loaded. But um, for a sales and marketing professional to come into the alcohol industry, what would you say is a, a skill set and trait or trait that they that they would need to be successful? Uh, I'll, I'll make it to a sports analogy. Short memory. Yep. Forget that interception. Forget that fumble. Um, focus on the goal. And it is, you hear a lot of no's and you hear, and you hear a lot of maybes um, and having the patience and the short memory to just focus on your goal and focus on what, what you want, what you want at the end of the day um, and, and filter out the noise, you know, be, be true to who you are and filter out the rest, man. And, and just really focus on um, what do you want out of it? And, and it's okay to hear no, you're going to hear no. <laughs> and so, you know, that short memory or that patience is probably, at least for this conversation, the best piece of advice I could give. Awesome. So, but hey, Church, and thank you so much. I know we, we do talk every day, so it is it is nice to also talk in this aspect. <laughs> Never actually get to talk about our stories and everything. And I'm so excited. I'm really looking forward to getting this started. And uh, we appreciate everybody's time and hope everybody uh, looks forward to the subsequent uh, episode to follow. This was fun. Can't wait to do it again. Absolutely. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate it. All right, bud. Take care. It's that time of year again. Time to decide if you've been naughty or have you been nice. Of course, you've been nice. Head to driveway.com now and upgrade your sleigh. 
When you buy from Driveway, there's no pressure or haggling. We offer our best price up front, online financing options, and a worry-free 7-day or 400-mile money-back guarantee. That's Driveway, an easy car buying experience that's delivered right to your, well, like the name says, Driveway. If you enjoyed today's show, please head over to iTunes, give us a rating, and leave a review. I'm Jane Secker, and you're listening to episode 18 of Storycast 21. In 2005, in the aftermath of the 7th of July London terror attacks, the shooting of Jean-Charles de Menezes and its subsequent handling led to international outrage. As of 2021, the case remains mired in controversy. This is The Shooting. My name is Mark White. I was the Home Affairs Correspondent at Sky News for more than 15 years. On the 22nd of July 2005, I was outside Oval Tube Station. That was one of the London underground stations that was at the centre of a security alert after a failed bomb attack. Sifting through hundreds of hours of CCTV footage, police were able to come up with four remarkably clear images, men they believed were involved in yesterday's attack. A group of Islamic terrorists had tried to detonate four bombs on the London Underground network and on a double-decker bus in Hackney. Two weeks earlier, on the 7th of July 2005, four men had successfully blown up three underground trains and a London bus in Tavistock Square. And that killed 52 people and injured up to a 1,000 others. Then, just two weeks later, this carbon copy attack. Wearing a New York T-shirt, this man was pictured running from the Oval Tube Station. This man was Thankfully, on this occasion, the bombs didn't fully detonate. At Warren Street Tube, this man was seen leaving the station at 12.39 yesterday. Much of London was shut down at that point as there was a very active manhunt looking for four individuals who the authorities believed were intent on killing as many people as possible. While that manhunt was getting underway, police mistakenly identified a Brazilian national, John Charles de Menezes, as the bomber who targeted Shepherd's Bush tube station, that bomber Hussein Osman. In the rucksack Osman used to carry his bomb, police found a gym membership card that linked to an address in Scotia Road in Tulse Hill in South London. Jean-Charles de Menezes lived in Scotia Road along with his cousin Patricia de Silva in the block of flats that police now had under surveillance. When I arrived in London, I started to live in Tulsehill with Jean and um, two young ladies, yes. I came to London on 2004. 
I live in São Paulo and Jean in Gonzaga. John Charles de Menezes was 27. He grew up in rural countryside in southeastern Brazil. Each year, my mommy takes us to, to spend time in Gonzaga. So I definitely can't say that we grew up together because each year we meet. Jean was a, um, a very clever boy very clever boy. He had grown up around agriculture all of his life, but had a real interest in electronics. He wanted to pursue that. He went to college in Brazil and managed to get a diploma, which set him on the road to getting a career and a skill set as an electrician. This then enabled him to move towards Europe to look for work in that field. John Charles and his cousin Patricia, who was then working as a cleaner, just went about their everyday business in Scotia Road. I was very happy because I liked to know different things and places and the new experiences. They could have had no idea that the block of flats they lived in was under intense police surveillance, that it was linked to the wanted bomber, Hussein Osman. Armed, plainclothes police officers had been deployed near South London tube stations as part of the wide-ranging reaction to yesterday's attacks. we just had a failed set of bombings. Police were in a race against time to find those responsible. I remember that day I, I left the house to, to go to Bromley to work. So I left the house very early, very, very early. And this suspect from the Shepherd's Bush incident was pictured at Westbourne Park tube station at 12.21. Police released I was police. very conscious about the, the, the situation in the city. Yes, I, I, I was afraid as well, yes, because it, it's everything, it, is, it was very scary for everyone. The four bombers fled after detonators ignited but failed to set off their bombs. This particular surveillance team was made up of police surveillance officers, but they were assisted by some specialists from the army as well. Jean-Charles left the block of flats in Scotia Road at 9.30 in the morning, as usual, to go off to work. He was just wearing a denim jacket. He wasn't carrying any bags because he'd left his tools with a colleague the day before. A member of the military surveillance team known as Frank was in the van watching the flat. He'd half missed John Charles coming out. He was unable to film him because, as we understand it, he was urinating in a bottle in the back of the van. Having caught a glimpse of John Charles, he tasked other surveillance teams to follow the young Brazilian who at this time was heading towards Brixton tube station. Certainly the authorities believed he looked a bit like Hussein Osman, the would-be bomber from the Shepherd's Bush underground train. And unbeknownst, of course, to John Charles, there were surveillance teams with him, along with others following in vehicles behind us. They tried to determine whether this was indeed their suspect, Osman. 
all of the time they were reporting into a command centre where the operation was being overseen by Cressida Dick, who is now, of course, the Metropolitan Police Commissioner. Significantly, there were members of that team who were reporting in that there was no positive ID on this individual as they then continued to follow him. John Charles got to Brixton Tube Station. He got out at that point. But because of all the security alerts that were taking place across the capital, Brixton Tube Station like a number of other stations, was closed. So he found himself going back onto another bus, heading this time towards Stockwell Tube Station. The undercover police actually thought that what was going on here was classic counter-surveillance techniques being deployed by a highly trained suspect. Now that just upped the threat level and their concern. John Charles was just going about his daily routine, though, doing nothing different to what every other commuter trying to get into Brixton Station that morning was doing, which was trying to find an alternative route. This young man had gone into Stockwell Tube Station. He'd picked up a paper from the stand, had gone through the ticket barrier had walked down to the platform and when the train came in he launched into a bit of a trot to get to his train. Get out, get out, eight or nine undercover police guys with walkie-talkies and, and handguns that just start screaming at everyone. By the time the police rushed onto that underground train, Jean-Charles de Menezes' fate was already sealed. And then there was six or seven gunshots behind us and then people just screaming at us to get out of the station. We have some breaking news coming from the Metropolitan Police. Uh, we understand that there are reports that police have shot a suspected suicide bomber in South London. According to... I remember after working, I went to library in Bromley and uh, stayed there to use the computer, internet... Witnesses say they saw armed police officers chase a man onto a Northern Line tube train that was waiting on the platform with its doors open. I read um, the, the, the police in London shoot to, uh, shoot to kill a, a terrorist. There have been subsequent reports suggesting that shots have been fired from a Northern Line train. This man was apparently taken. So after this, I left the library and they take a bus to home. was shot dead just a day after failed bombing attacks on the London transport system. I was doing hourly, half-hourly live updates outside Oval when I got a phone call to say there had been a shooting at Stockwell tube station. A fortnight after terrorists killed 52 people. Now, they thought that it was linked to this operation to find those responsible for the previous day's failed bombing attacks. When... I got to, to, to flat, I opened the door, and there's two friends of Jean in, in the living room. Jesu is a friend. They was about to start a big job in central London. And uh, I, I said to them, what's happening? And, oh, uh, Patricia, 
we come here because the police um, coming to us because my my telephone number was the last contact in the Jean mobile and they show a photo from Jean and they ask do you know any family this man who we need to contact the family of this man in London they said to us Jean was arrested because Jean is a suspect of terrorism I said what what after this I remember Alex coming Alex is a cousin Patricia uh, you have to come into police station I said to him why Alex where's Jean coming to police station Patricia don't make question Well, our crime correspondent Martin Brunt is at Scotland Yard and uh, Martin joining us just as there's breaking news that we believe the man shot dead here in Stockwell was not connected to yesterday's events. What more can you tell us? Well, I can only tell you that this is what uh, I'm picking up from security sources that remember the... I I remember we entered in this car and that they dropped us in the police station. It's believed the man who was shot this morning at Stockwell Tube wasn't one of those four bombers that police are still hunting. They take us on the to bring us to a room with a, a, a table in the middle. I remember one uh, some drinks on the table and the police officer start to talk. And he start to talk, talk, talk. I I could understand nothing. I remember Jesus uh, taking my hands and said to me, do you remember the police shoot to kill a terrorist, a guy in Stockwell Station? Did you see the news, Patricia? I said, yes, I see, but they didn't kill a terrorist in Stockwell. I said, no, no. They um, confused Jean with a terrorist. They kill Jean. The Metropolitan Police have released the following statement. We are now satisfied that the man was not connected with the incidents of Thursday the 21st of July. For somebody to lose their life in such circumstances is a tragedy and one that the Metropolitan Police Service regrets. I think there's no doubt that senior management at Scotland Yard, the Metropolitan Police Headquarters, felt really under siege during this whole episode. It was a case of them battening down the hatches, trying as best they could to avoid reputational damage in what had been a catastrophic mistake. I think the Met is playing out of its socks, and I think that uh, the progress on this investigation is extremely fast. I think there was definitely briefings where information was getting out into the public realm that just somehow cast some kind of suspicion on a young man who lost his life at just 27 years of age, having done nothing wrong at all. On Friday morning, the man was followed by police into Stockwell tube station. He refused to stop and ran onto a train. Officers shouted at passengers to get down as the man was shot at close quarters and killed. You know, it's no 
they said, oh, he's jumped the barriers and uh, he's run. I think they want to justify this. Jean-Charles de Menezes had gone through the ticket barrier. He'd walked down to the platform. The people that were actually vaulting the barriers and running down the escalators of the tube station were the armed police and the surveillance teams who were chasing after Jean-Charles. The passengers claim that Mr. de Menezes had remained in his seat and that they never heard any officer shout armed police. The armed police who ran onto that underground train believed in all probability that they were going to die as well, that this man was going to detonate a device and kill as many people as possible. Of course, he wasn't. He was an innocent member of the public, but the armed police who opened fire that day just didn't know that. Certainly, the authorities believed in terms of the surveillance operation that they mounted that he looked like Hussein Osman, their main suspect. All officers following him on and off buses had to go on was this grainy photo of Osman from a gym membership card. There was a very, very vague similarity if you want to boil it down to having swarthy skin and perhaps not looking European. Other than that, I don't think they look too similar. If my cousin had a bomb with him, it's hard to stop him before he gets a bus, before he gets uh, underground. Not to let him take a bus, go to the underground, then shoot him from behind. No one ended up in jail. No officer who opened fire was subject to any legal sanction. None of the surveillance officers were either. For the Menezes family and supporters, their joy at the conclusions of the inquest jury is tempered by their anger over what they claim was a deeply flawed legal process. We had subsequent inquests and investigations and appeals by the family over the years demanding justice, never really feeling that they got that justice. It was the view in all of the main legal proceedings, though, that the police were doing their job in trying circumstances. They got it catastrophically wrong in parts, but the individual actions of officers were not criminal. Today, we are authority like 16 years ago. It is still it's too much for us. And... Um, I don't know if one day you will have justice. In my view, I don't think so, because I think now it is, it, it is more impossible. On July the 29th, 2005, just over a week after the shooting of Jean-Charles de Menezes, Hussein Osman was arrested in Rome. The four would-be bombers who attempted the 7-7-style attack are currently serving life sentences in the UK. In 2016, the Menezes family took the British government to the European Court of Human Rights, but failed in their bid to bring about prosecutions. As of 2021, the case remains controversial. The shooting was produced by Rob Mulhern and Tom Gillespie. For more information, go to skynews.com forward slash storycast21. Storycast is Sky News' multi-award-winning storytelling podcast unit. Next time... And I remember the very first lunch break, people were 
kind of glaring at me, almost as if the things they heard I had done. I was really torn in how I was going to move forward with this because I had built my life around doing Michael Jackson, and it was up to those people in that jury box what was going to come back. episode, please leave us a review on iTunes. be advised that this podcast is meant for educational and informational purposes only and is in no way a replacement for legal or medical advice. The opinions contained within are solely those of the interviewers and interviewees and should be received as so. Those seeking help or advice are encouraged to obtain professional legal and medical services.